We're here with Dr. Joshua Miller. He's the Inscape Center at Franciscan University for a personal vocation. And just wanted to do some follow-up to the show we did. And one, you were just telling me you've given retreats to empty nesters, women uh, that have the children have left the home mm -hmm. and now they're wondering what's their purpose in life. Mm -hmm. right? What do you tell them? Many of them have been used to thinking about their vocation in terms of being a, a mother and a spouse. And of course, that's a deeply significant part of their identity. But when uh, the kids are gone and they have so much energy and a desire to serve, a huge question often becomes, um, what do I do now? How can I serve? What, what is my calling now? And this is an, one of the reasons why it's important to cultivate uh, one's unique gifts and unique identity, which informs every state of, every state of life. Um, but to be able to help them see that the Lord has given them uh, unique gifts that they need to cultivate and can cultivate um, to continue serving in the church. Um, so we stress that that their vocation is not uh, as important as it is reduced to being a mother or spouse, but um, that God has uniquely called them by name always. So on that basis, then we begin to explore uh, how to use those gifts for service. And does some of that, I, I see like mothers around here that have adult children. I mean, they're praying like warriors. Yeah, like they shift they to a more contemplative mode, I think sometimes. Yeah, often, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the prayer warriors of the church are often our mothers. Yeah. And you've had some, though, like really take on a new direction or go places they never thought they'd be? Or Yeah. Uh, we offer a seminar called Living Your Personal Vocation. And one of the women was in her 50s and had always wanted to write a children's book. Hmm. <laughs> but it hadn't had the time... Um, or the energy to, to do that. And so in the seminar, we do look at you know, one's stories and how those stories reveal uh, gifts, those fulfillment stories. And she became convinced as one of her goals as a result of the seminar that she should uh, pursue writing a, a children's story with a Catholic theme. And she went ahead and did that. And then uh, a few months later, she sent a copy of it to one of my colleagues who uh, happily opened it up. And that's one example of a, of a fruit from a seminar that we've led for a woman um, who had become an empty nester. What about, you know, like sometimes like, you know, people you know, develop a lifetime developing skills and things. Mm -hmm. and, and when you haven't done that. Um, yeah. How does that factor into everything? <laughs> yeah, that's such a great question. Uh, clearly, having not spent time developing one's skills and gifts is, is a problem. It's a detriment. Nonetheless, there's still opportunity for service and growth. One of the analogies I like to use, Father Mark, of, of uh, following a personal vocation 
is we're called to co-create a story uh, or co-create a chapter in God's big grand narrative of salvation history. And if we think of it like a big tapestry, the front side of that tapestry is glorious. It's got lovely threads and pictures, and but the back side of it is often a, a mess of tangled knots. And it's really helpful to talk to people who have made mistakes in life, maybe that have developed their gifts as they wanted to originally. But if they say yes to the Lord, however old they are, and then proceed to serve Him as best they can in the ways that He's given them to do, according to the opportunities that He's given to them, um, that they can see their life as part of that, that, that tapestry. It's just that the backside of it maybe was a little naughtier than others. So I think it's a, it's a beautiful analogy and people take to it. Hmm. And I would think, you know, motherhood, raising kids develops skills. For sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What, what, how would you describe those skills that they're very good at? Like a, a mother, say like in her 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Well, surely there are some general characteristics. I think mothers uh, generally learn how to manage multiple things. Um, uh, Generally, they learn how to provide an atmosphere of comfort and security. Um, Generally, they're uh, highly relational. But I think it's also important to stress that each unique woman is going to develop that motherhood and express it in her own unique way. And that's one of the messages that that I like to stress is that although there are critical norms that that mothers have to follow, right? Um, Some of them feel guilty if they're not conforming to those norms in the way that they imagine they ought to. And we need to relieve them of that anxiety by letting them know that, um, that they need to pay attention to how God designed them and then leverage that to be the best moms that they can be. Right, right. What about the father side of it? I I remember talking to a, I think he worked like in mission advancement type position at Steubenville. I can't remember his name, but he had like 13 kids or something. Oh, okay, yeah. A lot of children. And, and I remember when I, we spoke to him, he had dinner with us one time, this was years ago, but he, his oldest was just starting to look at colleges. And so he was driving her to different schools or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and and he said he was all excited. I remember asking him a question about it. And he said, yeah, he said he feels like he's finally really starting to come into play here. You know, that he was, <laughs> I, I thought about, I think there's this guy, William Stinson, he writes about like the role of father and stuff. but. He said it's like their job to kind of introduce the child to the outside world, mm. to guide them in navigating mm-hmm. that. And uh, that's certainly been true in my life. Like older men have helped mm-hmm. me to address certain issues or dealing with people issues and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I do find in my own life that maybe father, because it's I because it's I'm more philosophical, more academic, more interested in rich conversations about the deep things of life. Um, 
that, but I find that with my older kids, that I just I love having those conversations with them, helping to coach them, um, and to help them navigate. I really do cherish that, those opportunities, and certainly that's something that a lot of fathers share, and I, I, I join in that as well. Yeah. In your own story, that you're a convert to Catholicism, mm-hmm. how did that happen? My parents in the 1980s were very involved in the pro-life movement. And when I went to college, I'd started out at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is not exactly a, um, <laughs> a paradise of, of orthodoxy. <laughs> uh, but the first day I arrived, I saw a pro-life club, University of Wisconsin-Madison Students for Life. And I immediately wanted to get involved with them, and I did. And I met Catholics for the first time uh, who really loved the Lord. And I was moved to the Catholic faith through her teaching about abortion and contraception and the consistent teaching that the church gives us um, about the preservation and cherishing of life. So that's where it started. And uh, there were various other paths that I took, or, or I should say various ways that the Lord called me to him. But that was the start. It was the pro-life movement in the early 1990s. Mm. Yeah. Was that a particular person that helped guide you? And... Uh, Monica Miglarino Miller, who was a pro-life warrior, um, gave me a book by Carl Adams called The Spirit of Catholicism, and she mentored me. I listened to those old Scott Hahn tapes on St. Joseph Communications. I read a lot as well. But um, I would say a variety of people, but, but Scott Hahn, Monica Miller. Uh, I had a girl that I was dating for a couple weeks who made it very clear that she would not marry anybody who wasn't Catholic, and she was beautiful. <laughs> so she got me into... Uh, reading some some good books. But as a philosopher, you would say you were drawn to the beautiful, right? I was drawn to be exactly, (laughs) exactly that. And the church is full of beauty in so many ways. So those are some of the beginnings. But I I find it fascinating because I was was always sensitive to the, the, um, the protection of persons. And I find now that part of why personal vocation is so moving to me is that each one matters and it's it's consistent with my uh, uh, desire to serve the lord through the protection of children as well i always emphasize that we're not just saving human beings here but every single one matters and needs to be saved and why was it so important for your parents that they were involved in that issue i think they just saw abortion as murder rightly so and were they deep, deeply religious people? Yeah, they, they loved Jesus very much. But I, I grew up as kind of a roving Protestant gypsy. We just went to different, <laughs> different yeah. Protestant communions. And, um, but I, I am so grateful for them. Art and Carol are their names. Oh. And uh, they, they taught me to love the Lord. And what was the pro-life culture like? As you went to the D.C. march and things? I for sure did, yeah. Yeah. What was it like back then? 
I was involved in uh, the rescue movement and we had an organization called Collegians Activated to Liberate Life, CALL. <laughs> and so it was, it was wonderful. We, we organized uh, rescues ourselves. We got on campuses where there was hot opposition to what we were doing. It was an adventure for life. And um, every time, Father, that we did a, uh, a prayerful, nonviolent, um, either prayer outside of an abortion clinic or, or did a rescue, uh, lives were saved. And a, a very beautiful memory that I'd like to share is that um, we did a rescue in Northwest Indiana. And about a year later, we, our organization got a letter from a grandmother which had a picture of a baby. And it was a simple thank you that, thank you all, here's a picture of my grandchild who would have died had you all not been there that day. Mm. So just a number of stories of lives actually saved and um, mothers spared from the horror of abortion. Yeah. yeah. I wonder sometimes like early movements, you might have kind of a more John the Baptist figures, you know, that are oh, really... Had them. <laughs> Randall Terry was one of them and he's now Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I mean, I didn't start going to the March when we were in seminary. I was like 1997, 96 or something. But but then it just seemed like it had, you had more, they had like the, the Prophet of Doom bus, like a painted school bus with four-way speakers on top, you know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I've encountered such buses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It just seems tamer now, but I mean, it's powerful. It's it's organized. You got talented people and uh, well-spoken people, and mm -hmm. just intellectually, you know, more. Just seems like that's a more greater, robust defense. And I, I think too, like like the role of women in that march. It's been it's probably dominated by women, I would think, and young people. Yeah, yeah, women and young people. It's yeah. it's, it's extraordinary. Going to the march now. The, the the median age is probably about 22. Right. And I'm just guessing yeah, that. Yeah. But but there's so many high school youth. It's a it's a vital movement of young. Yeah. And it's so critical I think in these days of identity politics. Yeah. That women are these strong voices of like a of the new feminism that maybe John Paul II talked about. Yes. And uh just absolutely critical. I mean, it, it's almost it like it, it's almost like the other side can't argue with it. Almost, no. you know? and uh, I remember at an airport one time I was talking to this gentleman. I, I think he was from well, he was in America. I think he was going to Switzerland or something. But and somehow we were eating next to each other, and I remember him telling us somehow the the, the abortion things were really raging in the in the national news media and and I remember him telling me well you know it's really men that are forcing this pro life stuff and he said I don't really want to talk about it but he said you know that's you know he's just kind of saying that's of course that's all that it is hmm. and at the time I was able to tell him that our woman governor was the one. <laughs> That was approving and promoting like this strong legislation in Alabama, mm -hmm. and that you know you go to any march, it's just full of women, and uh, it was just so misinformed, you know. And mm -hmm. he just, but 
Yeah, there, there are a lot of lies that people believe. Uh, I'm, I've been involved for years in a um, crisis pregnancy center, and the women who come, they don't want to abort their babies. Right. They almost always feel forced, trapped, and would, would long for stable, supportive um, husbands, uh, boyfriends, to, uh, to families to, to care for them. They don't want to abort their babies. It's often men who are um, putting pressure on, on women to abort. Yeah. Or they feel like they have no choice. Exactly That's they, right. Yeah. Are there some stories that stick out in your mind, in your work, that were just particularly powerful for you to hear? As a, as a pro-lifer? Oh, no, just in, in general, general in your work. Yeah. Um, I'll just say one quick thing. I, I remember I was sitting in this room. It was some kind of government building, but it was an outreach to the poor. And it, they had like a poster. It looked like it was right out of the 70s, early 80s. And it was like this grandfather figure sitting on the dock with this young kid with mm. some fishing stuff. And the caption said, everyone has a story to tell. And the mm. grandfather was listening to the boy who was talking. And I thought, man, that is so true that everybody has a story if you just mm -hmm. listen, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's several stories, but I would say that, um, well, here are two. And these are stories of young adults. So, and I'll mention this person's name because he wouldn't mind it and would, would, would perhaps... Um, appreciate the friendship that it indicates. So there's a fellow named Braden Johnson, who I worked with a few years ago. He was a, um, a participant in a seminar at Franciscan University of Steubenville called Living Your Personal Vocation. And Braden grew up with a desire to be on stage. So he would do Justin Bieber impersonations at a young age. <laughs> um, and he would, you know, sing at, at the malls uh, and, and, uh, and get um, adulation from that. And his, like his mom had him as a model. And, and um, he did those things well as a singer. And he, he had a really significant conversion in high school and thought about those desires for the stage and for recognition with, with a lot of shame. And what he came to in our coaching relationship is that his, many of his gifts, he's got a lot of gifts, but, but his gift of public speaking and of motivation um, and of, of reading an audience and speaking well to an audience is a gift of the Lord. And that what matters is how we use those gifts. Um, God creates masterpieces, and some of us are going to reflect his gift and drive for inspiring uh, and for, for shining light. And so Braden had a real pivot where he recognized that his gift for speaking and interest in the response that comes from that is a way that he can be an image bearer. So 
right now he is a he's a, a speaker for youth. He does great work and attributes that shift to coaching that we did around personal vocation. Mm. So that that's um, uh, one particularly poignant story. There are several others. Can you, you want to mention another yeah, one? Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the most powerful works that we do at Inscape is this seminar called Living Your Personal Vocation. And a couple of years ago, we were running this, and I think it was during COVID. Um, and it was it's done on, uh, on Zoom, so it's a virtual meeting. And one of the young women was from Minnesota. And as we always do, we say, what, what do you want to, how do you want to grow during the course of the seminar where we teach them about who they are as laypersons? We teach them about the uh, personal vocation and why it's so valuable for the renewal of the church. We have them identify growth goals uh, where they cultivate their unique gifts to meet those goals. But this young woman at the beginning was dating a, a young man and wasn't sure if she should continue that relationship. But during the course of the seminar, through the teaching, the coaching, the facilitation of group support, at the very end, we were asking uh, participants some of the fruit from the seminar. And this young woman held up her hand and it had a, a diamond engagement ring on it. And she said, well, I've, I've discerned that I, I, I wanna get, I'm going to get married. I've said yes to my, to my boyfriend, now my fiance, and I, I invite you all to the wedding. And so <laughs> having not met everybody um, in person, the seminar was so moving for her that she was able to move to that particular state of life vocation. Um, Another one that I want to share with you, which is really powerful. Um, we were working with a woman who is deaf, uh, completely deaf, very powerful, persevering woman. And she is married, uh, raised several children. But one of her, her unique gifts is to overcome great difficulties. And through the process of the seminar, she came to see that that was part of how God motivated and designed her is to overcome great difficulties and to persevere. And she had a very significant paradigm shift where she realized that she was able to make it as a mother, raise the kids, not because of anger, and she had this idea that she was able to, able to be successful because of anger that uh, emerged from, you know, from being a deaf woman, living in a hard world. But wasn't really anger that got her through, but rather a gift of perseverance through difficulty. And she had a very significant paradigm shift and was able to see her success in a totally positive light. So this woman went on to, to become a certified coach um, and is now working, working with Inscape mm. and, uh, and working with young adults uh, to help them understand personal vocation as well. Her name is Andrea. How could she hear the young adults? Like... She has, uh, she's able to read lips very well uh -huh. <laughs> and also uh, clo through closed captioned um, Close caption oh, devices. It's yeah, oh, exactly. Okay. 
So she's quite remarkable yeah. in that regard. And what are some typical principles about cultivating gifts that you have them do? Yes. On the show earlier, I mentioned fulfillment stories. And this That's ties like, in with what you said about you know, a story where you felt fulfilled, right? Yeah, that you were, it's yeah. simply this: it's a story of of, of uh, some activity that you enjoy doing and believe you do well. What we have people do is is go back as early as they can remember to the sandbox, you know, bacon pies with grandma, early, early, yeah. and they first of all reflect on those stories. And these could come from any sphere of activity. It's maybe it's sports related, it's school related. Maybe it's um, related to church or community friendships, or certainly their work uh, as we get older in life. But they reflect and write about a series of those stories. And then we talk about them. Huh. And that in itself, apart from the gifts that are revealed, that by itself is really, really powerful because most people haven't taken the time they've not been asked or they've not taken the time to reflect deeply on on a variety of stories of deep authentic personal fulfillment and what they reveal is a pattern of unique gifted behavior mm -hmm. so that's where we start we take them through assessments like m code uh strengths finder i mentioned those two which reveal strengths and, and underlying motivation within the stories. Um, but the very fact of, of sharing to a listening, attentive, loving person is by itself really powerful because it allows them to be affirmed authentically uh, as opposed to just getting a gold star because everybody else does, right? But, but we, 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 we name that pattern of gifts uh, through the stories and then we concentrate on helping them co-create uh, the next chapters. Um, so we, we talk about their own story within the grand narrative of salvation history. And that, that's particularly powerful because it's not just about them understanding their gifts. It's about them realizing that God wants to use those gifts for, for salvation history, for the big story. And do you have like an example of that, like typically, or maybe something you remember of a person being situated in that story mm -hmm. that seemed like a very ordinary life? Certainly. Uh, let me draw attention to some of the work that I've done um, coaching priests. Mm -hmm. um, there's an older priest in the Diocese of Camden, New Jersey, and uh, was a pastor of a parish doing all the kinds of things that our pastors do. And they're, they're, they're responsible for so much. So this particular um, priest had stories that were full of simple relationship building. And from his high school years, from his collegiate years, from seminary years, early priesthood years, so many of his stories were about building relationships with people and creating community and just spending time getting to know people and enjoying that community and helping them um, live into it. Well, so much of his work as pastor was related to 
um, administrative functions. And what we found over the coaching is that he had lost sight of focusing on visiting people in their homes and building relationships with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course he felt he had to, you know, to do so many of the pastoral administrative responsibilities. So it was a beautiful moment in coaching where he recognized that so much life came from visiting people in their homes mm. and building relationships with them. So what we do in coaching is we have development plans and we were able to come up with a very specific, smart goal-oriented development plan that had him building teams of folks who could take over some of the administrative burden, some of the paperwork, um, some of the um, some of the things that he could do but just didn't have life from and return to a basic pastoral approach of relationship building. And it was incredibly life, life-giving mm-hmm. for him, which of course elevated his service in all the other areas as well. So there's a lot of stories like that that, that are important for us to help people pay attention to. You know, one thing I find with myself too is I I journal off and on, you know, yes. every day. Um, and it's important I, practice. Yeah, maybe you could, we could talk about that in a minute too. But I I find for me, it's like when I talk about maybe something going on or some issue I'm struggling with, I'll mm-hmm. talk to a friend. I find myself almost like what I'm saying, I just kind of lead myself to what I need to Yes. Do. And it's almost like just talking yes. about it the story comes out. It's maybe. so true. It's so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's very, very true. Uh, so in coaching, you know, we don't tell, we don't advise, but we do draw out. And so often it happens like you've described, Father Mark, where people will speak and process. And when they're doing that to a really interested, empathic person, in this case a coach, People will resolve their own yeah. their own issues. Come I guess that's called like external processes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And what would the internal processor look like? Is that more the journaling type, you think? <laughs> um, well, I think in, co- in a coach context, sometimes mm-hmm. they have to speak it out. Mm-hmm. But also cr- just creating space for the internal processor to think it through. Yeah. Um, but I entirely agree that journaling is um, is a significant way that people... We'll work through issues. Well, that yeah. space. I highly recommend it. And that space might be right, taking a walk outside yes, yes. or something. Of all things, I just read this little blurb of Miley Cyrus. I think she did these TikTok videos. Um, and I just paraphrasing what I got from it was that it, she was taking a break from performance because it. I think she felt like it it took her out of her true self so much that you're having to perform. You're having to go on stage and do who knows what. Mm-hmm. You know? But also, I mean, you're presenting whatever, you know, and it's like, and, and she said she really longed to like take a walk with her friends and just to kind of get rooted back in herself. Because mm-hmm. she really said she wanted to do more songwriting and mm-hmm. the, the performance. 
And I kind of knew what she meant in a sense, like, like when I, my experience is like I'm preaching or you're doing like television work. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but there is, I guess it is kind of a performance mode. I don't know if I'm not looking at it mm -hmm. right or something, but um, there's that element of performance and you, mm -hmm. I don't know, sometimes you, you wind up feeling a little alienated or disconnected. From one's own self. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that there's the wonderful Benedictine phrase of, of, of recollection this idea of recollection, we have to collect ourselves and possess ourselves. And when we're living these frenetic, fast-paced lives, I can imagine someone like you know, a highly paid, highly sought-after celebrity who's just always on, yeah. there's a lot of pressure, there, that they could lose a sense of selfhood. Uh, we all have to have space for reflection, introverts as well as extroverts. And, and to, to, to recollect ourselves. And if we don't do that well, we can't give of ourselves effectively. I, f I find for my own self that if I'm too much in teaching mode about the same sorts of things and I'm not able to take time for, of course, for, for prayer, but for, for study, um, that I, 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 I tend to dissipate myself and get dry and very much need that time for recollection. Yeah, I, I heard somebody else say this the other day too, like, like to get, like getting back to themselves kind of thing is mm -hmm. one thing they like to do is cooking or something. And I, I'm certainly not a cook, but sometimes like just making a cup of coffee, like a pour over cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. It just takes a little more time and your tastes a little better, you know. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> Or just you know, like making a, some toast with avocado, you know, just like instead of just like taking cereal, throw it in a bowl of milk mm -hmm. and gobble it down, mm -hmm. you know, there's a little bit of uh, work or uh, even like, like say, okay, what does this need? Or does mm -hmm. it need to do this longer or that long? You know, mm -hmm. it just uh, it applies a little bit more of yourself into it. Yeah, that's true. The creative process. Yeah. I, yeah, my wife and I will be in the kitchen together sometimes, and I always enjoy having the rhythm of cooking a meal together to be a, a good space for conversation. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like classical music too. Does yes. That. I don't know what it is. I mean, there's there's beautiful there's some beautiful music out there, but. I listen to maybe even some like Andrea Bocelli stuff. He's singing this Italian love song. And it's, <laughs> it's thunderous and it's like it only the Italian language is the only way to present whatever they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and it's moving. But it, I don't know what it is about classical music that it it just has a way of like giving you some peace. And, mm -hmm. um, it's not like stimulating on a surface level. It's like it's kind of enriching on a deeper level or something. I, I experienced that also. Yeah. I think it, it does appeal to contemplative wonder and that part of who we are. Unlike uh, like a heavy rock music or reggae, that it, it appeals more to the gut and more more uh, to um, 
more of a visceral part of who we are. Yeah. And there's goodness there, of course. But I think the best classical music, it elevates our hearts and our minds in, in, in a kind of wonder. And that's very enriching and necessary. Yeah, I think about like preaching or even like storytelling or movies, I would imagine that, you know, you always hear, nobody complains that a homily was too short, you know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I mean, one time, I think it was on the air, you know, I, I went like, I think I went over 20 minutes and I just thought, oh, this is crazy, you know, who's, who's listening to this? <laughs> but I, I've come and I, I haven't by any chance mastered this, but... You know, there is something to be said about the, the beauty of the logic of it, of the presentation, and and even like the conciseness of it. You know, because actually I was watching this great story. It was about John Adams. Oh, Did I you love see John that? Adams. Yeah. It was like a, the David McCullough series? It's like six parts. I think it was HBO. Put it yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I think it was the David, it was Paul Giannamore. Yes. The yeah, actor, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. great. And I I find him a lot of fun. He's just he reminds me of Richard Dreyfus. You know, he's just oh, I love him. Yeah. <laughs> he's not a comedy guy so much, but he gives some speeches in there that are just so powerful. Yes, that's right. And and I was so struck by because I went back and thought about it. It's a, it was so brief. It was so short. You know, he was making his case in court or whatever. I mean, if you just sat down and looked at it. It was brief, yet it was like so striking and powerful mm -hmm. that, um, that that that's a big element to like, if you're wanting to convey these things to other people, to have it in a beautiful, I think like Bishop Barron, you know, he preaches, he draws in literature and everything. Mm -hmm. and, um, that is just so compelling. But anyway, I, um, I think along classical music, I think it's, its beauty there is so convicting. Yes, it is. And like in storytelling or preaching or whatever, you can have that element too. Mm -hmm. but let's talk about journaling a second. Yes. What, how do you instruct people about how to journal? Well, I, I use it in specific ways when I'm teaching philosophy of the human person. And I also use it as a way to help people understand their unique gifts and then uh, move forward in uh, developing those gifts. So as opposed to um, general journaling, it's normally in those, those couple of areas. Um, but one of the quotes I'll often use is from Romano Gardini. And he says, he says this, he says, the memory is the power with which a man summons his interior world for inspection, mm. thus for the first time really possessing himself of it. And I think there's a lot of pressure on us in our digital culture to move rapidly on from thing to thing to thing. And so journaling is a way of, uh, of remembering uh, taking stock and um, adding thickness to our memory. And when we can deepen our memory, then we can more fully possess ourselves. 
So I think, I, in general, I think that, that journaling that aids the memory is really significant. But it can also, and this references the um, journaling around fulfillment stories and their implications, and it can also awaken people to how God crafted them to be, and also some of the trajectory of their lives. So it's a way of, 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 of tracking uh, some of the plot lines of their, of their own life story and uh, where they've come from, where they're going. Um, I also think journaling with regard to uh, um, an examination of conscience, where there's a particular uh, issue that one might be dealing with or virtue that they want to gain. Um, journaling about success in that is super helpful or uh, how to learn from mistakes as well. So those are, those are a few areas that have, have um, So you could just have them like right upon an event that you did feel like you were getting traction or flourishing mm -hmm. or whatever, right? Just, For sure. Just, just, yeah. One of the things that I do, which I love, the, the best assignment that I've ever given in a philosophy class, one of the best ones is I have them go back to their fulfillment stories and identify a person or two or three, but identify a person who is, who is instrumental in their own success. Then they write a letter of gratitude to that person. And I say, you've got to read it out loud to that person. Mm. And then they, what they reflect upon for the journal that I give is, what was the impact of reading that gratitude letter out loud uh, to, to the, the person who received it and to your relationship with him or her? And some of the most powerful journals that I've gotten are in response to that prompt. Mm. Um, and say the prompt one more time. It's, uh, it comes from the positive psychologists. Martin Seligman writes about this in his book, uh, Flourish. But others from the positive psychology movement have done research in this. But they have to uh, identify somebody who was who a critical part of their success write a letter of gratitude to that person, and then, if possible, read it out loud in the presence of the other. And then, uh, then they reflect upon the impact of that, of reading, reading the gratitude letter out loud. It's, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. Some of them share, you're going to... Um, a parent that they'd not properly thanked or mm. a coach and um, the expression of gratitude and, and delight on behalf of the one thanked. Um, one mother said, uh, spoke about healing, that it was very healing for her, her son to uh, thank her in the way that he had. So healing for her. Healing for her, yes. Mm. Um, and I don't know all the issues, but yeah. it may have been something like the son was hard to raise <laughs> and, and had, had uh, led a some, little bit of resentment on, on the mother's part or just some struggle and that her son acknowledged it. Yeah. And not just, you know, quick, thanks, mom, but yeah. in a reflective way. Right. That yeah. was uh, part of the healing. 
And what what about the points like in like maybe if we're saying that reading that letter to somebody or anything, mm-hmm. like the points where we are moved, like maybe there's some scene in a movie that mm-hmm. that moves us. What do you call those points? What do you do with those points? What's mm. going on? Sometimes I wonder if it's just unprocessed trauma that we have. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure sometimes it is. <laughs> but you know, maybe there's other stuff that's quote unquote more legitimate. I don't know. But uh... one of the books that we read is by Father Jacques Philippe. Uh, the title is called um, "Called to Life." And he and other, other, others in our spiritual tradition, our Catholic tradition, have noted this, but he speaks about God's call beginning at creation, but taking place through happy events and sorrowful events. And those things that just come into our imagination, um, that, that every aspect of life can be, in one sense, interpreted as a call. So if we think about calling that way, that it's a, it's, a, it's a constant reality. The Lord's always calling us. And we think about those moments of a film or something that we just notice kind of capturing our attention. Um, I think that we can interpret them as a kind of call. It's not as if God's telling us, go do that. But if, it, if God allows it to capture our attention, then we have to deal with it in some way. And so it, it's an invitation to respond minimally. Um, and I think that when we think about every fiber of life that way, every happening as, as God either directly causing to happen or allowing to happen, and therefore being part of how he's calling us, that what you described is, is a dimension of a call. Um, when we live life that way, it's just, it is so rich and full of adventure and, and dignity. Um, and as part of that, like hearing that call is, is maybe reflecting on why am I moved at this point? Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. Why am I moved? How, how, how ought I respond to this? What's going on interiorly? Yeah. Uh, what might the Lord have for me? That sounds very Hildebrandian. That, yes. That, that ought to respond. Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> What's response to value? Is that what he would write? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Response yeah. to value. What's what's being asked of me? Uh, I I remember years ago I was in college and watching this Woody Allen movie. I think it was called Another Woman, and and Gene Hackman was in it. He had like this side role, and um, I never got him. I always thought I don't know. I just he never really appealed to me, but. He he was in love with this woman, and they weren't married. It was adulterous, of course. Woody Allen adulterous relationship. Sure, you're right. But I remember it was like Central Park or something underneath a bridge or something, and he makes this profession of love to her. He imagine like tough guy Gene Hackman, Marine, mm-hmm. and it was it was so non stereotypical. I mean, it was just I forgot he did some simple gesture in it that was like, holy cow. It's like, mm. all of a sudden it, it hit me like, um, maybe something like what acting is and what um, a profession of love, sincerity, and it didn't have to be like the big rom-com kind of overdone mm-hmm. thing. Sure. <laughs> you know, it could be done in this uh, a tough guy kind of way, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, 
But I, I learned later, I was reading about him, like I think it was Reader's Digest when I was a kid, and he, his father had left, like without announcing, he was just like leaving the family, and he was out in a neighbor's yard playing, and the father drove by, oh. and he did just this little wave to him. Oh. And, and Hackman never forgot that wave, that gesture. It's so impressed upon him that, I don't know, it's like it made him really attuned, I think, in his acting mm. to his gestures and things like that. Mm. But anyway, I, you know, I, I think sometimes I, I guess I bring all this up too because I, I don't know why that struck me in that movie so much. Mm -hmm. And I heard somebody else commented on it too that impressed them. But, but the other thing, like we've been talking, like these last shows we've been doing with Life on the Rock, just about encounter. Yeah. And it's almost like, like with acting, and I know John Paul II was an actor and stuff. Um, I used to always think, man, these scripts are so terrible. If you just write a decent script in a movie, <laughs> you know, if you have these great speeches in it, you know, like John Adams and stuff or whatever. But, you know, I was just thinking with all this stuff we've talked about, like encountering, it's like, it's like the script is almost like giving this space for the encounter with the actor. Sure. To, to, to co-create the, uh, the film. So there's a, a script that's given, but he's going to bring his own experiences into that in nuanced ways and, and make it his own, make it her own. I think it's part of the beauty of, 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 of acting. It's not just following the script. Yeah, and it's like that's maybe what makes movies powerful for us. Like we're encountering another person, a sense of this character or this humanity that we can relate to. Mm -hmm. It's like real and visceral. And it, yeah, you need the script, but it's not going anywhere without the actor right? <laughs> that mm -hmm. can make this encounter possible. Right? Yeah, take it, take it places even that the the writer or the director didn't anticipate. Right. Because the best actors do that. Yeah, you know, there was this other movie that struck me that way, that um, it was this character that, like 20-something and like not going really anywhere in her life, she really felt stuck, and our, our friend leads her to this bridge, and they do this thing called trestling, where you, it's like this, this elevated uh, train thing, you know, mm -hmm. track, mm -hmm. and so you climb up on the on the wooden bridge support and you're like hanging underneath as the train rushes over. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was like, you know, she's flailing in life and looking for some stimulation or something. Yeah, that's... But it was such a powerful scene because it was at night and she said it was almost like this, this big angry God was just roaring over her life. And so it's at night, the trains come and the lights come and she sticks her hand out, you know, through the tracks, you know, and she pulls it back in, but she's holding on as the trains roaring past and like these sparks from the wheels are flying out mm. and she's crying out. I mean, it's like all her pain and stuff inside her that's all welled up. You know, I showed this movie to other people and they just kind of yawn, you know, what's the scene there, you know? But yeah, that is, the way you're describing it is a very powerful image. Yeah, yeah. It was like, I mean, I felt like, because I, I, I kind of feel like who doesn't feel some frustration at times with their relationship with God? It's like, where are you? Why aren't you in The this? Psalms are full of that. Yeah. And, yeah. and one reason why I love reading the Psalms and praying with them is because they do range over every human emotion. And the Lord 
you know, wants us to express to him uh, our disappointment when it's authentic or when we don't understand or when we're even angry. Yeah. Um, and he likes to wrestle with us and have us be authentic with him. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Psalms allow that yeah. for sure. I don't know if you saw like uh, Sylvester Stallone met with Pope Francis the other day. Oh, did he really? <laughs> he brought his wife and daughters and his brother with them. And Pope Francis told him something like, "Yeah, we grew up. I grew up with your movies or something." And uh, and you know, Sylvester, do you want to box? He does this kind of whole thing. <laughs> But he was very respectful, of you know, course. very polite, and Pope Francis is clearly enjoying it. But I thought. I mean, that's another kind of movie, you know, just, you know, just the idea of like the guy trying, you know, not yeah. giving up. I remember Rambo when I was in high school. Yeah. Not, yeah, not giving up. Yeah. Um, persevering deeply. Yeah. And of course, the Rocky movies. Yeah. Those are unforgettable. And that story, because, you know, that movie, the first Rocky begins with the scene, like the cameras on the Sacred Heart and that boxing gym. Is that right? Yeah, I it begins. Yeah, that. yeah, it begins on the sacred in Earth. Catholic Philadelphia, right? <laughs> yeah, but um, isn't that? I've heard people say that you know that that is the drama of story is mm-hmm. you know the struggle, mm-hmm. the cross, the resurrection. Every good that. story's got it. Yeah, every good story's got it. One of the things I've been doing lately is asking people my students okay what does a good story consist of mm-hmm. and well we don't exactly know the ending there's mystery there's some challenge or tension point right it's got to be resolved and so then i asked them to think about their own life as a story and say well look if if mystery is a good part of a story and not knowing the end and having struggled to deal with, then why should we be so upset if we don't have everything all figured out? Right. Or if there's struggle in life, yeah. or there's um, real, real pain and difficulty that we can't know now, but we know later gets figured out because your life is a story. And I, I think that that's helpful for them because they know that if they want their life to be a good story, it's got to have those elements that they just said were part of a good story. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, we all have struggled to deal with, and it's a part of the sanctifying process, but it's also part of a life well-lived and um, bearing our cross for other people, participating with Christ's work. You know, we wouldn't do that if we didn't have struggle. Yeah. And it seemed like today, you know, something that like a lot of modern movies do very well i think is like the unexpected or the twist you mm-hmm. know if it's at all predictable i know i kind of immediately get bored you oh, check of course out. Yeah. right because I, I guess life is always like unexpected life's unexpected and yeah i even thought yeah you said like the love of a good mystery it's like yeah i mean life is a mystery you know <laughs> and mm-hmm. how's things gonna work out and What's going to happen? And you know, you're dealing with God. You know, it's an infinite mystery. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what you went to Steubenville to study with Dr. Crosby? I did. Yeah. And what drew you to John Paul II and personalism? And 
I had mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast here that I was a, a convert. The work that my grandfather and father have, did and are doing, my grandfather's passed on, has to do with helping people identify giftedness through this fulfillment story narrative. But when I became Catholic in 94, I thought it was too Protestant, this, my, my, my family's work. It was so very focused upon the, the, the self. I thought it lacked a connection with uh, community and the social nature of the church. And so I, I wanted to do this work because I've always loved helping people like realize themselves through story and, and learning about biography and history and John Adams, right? Mm. Um, and other historical figures. But my point is that I wanted to test my grandfather and father's work with the best Catholic anthropology, the best Catholic personalism. And so I had read an article that John Crosby wrote about individuality and selfhood and uniqueness and, uh, wanted to study with him at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And so um, I was married in 1998 and in 2000 went up to uh, to study with Dr. Crosby. Mm. Um, and there I learned that this attentiveness to the uniqueness of each person and honoring the dignity of each person, each one having a unique essence, this is, this is very much an emphasis um, that John Paul had as a philosopher, but also his pastoral vision of the church as being renewed through personal vocation, mm. that deeply, deeply captured me. Um, and I've been trying to understand and promote that, that vision uh, ever since. Uh, so does that answer the question? Yeah. And he, Somebody recently said something along these lines, I think, too, about, you know, John Paul could really present, like, the mission of the church, like young people at Denver, you know, mm -hmm. preach it from the rooftops. Yes, and, yes, yes. And I was even reading quotes where his idea of Iron World Youth Day was that youth could especially evangelize youth. Yes, yeah. yes. But you, you give them this mission, mm -hmm. and he was so powerful in that. I mean, just... Like with the Polish people, I, I went to Poland this past October and just learning a little bit more about the history and what they've endured and persevered through. It's like, it's I mean, it's incredible. I know. Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, have you seen the work that Newt Gingrich did with his wife around Nine Days that Saved yeah, the World? Yeah. Uh, that's a remarkable story of his stirring up the hearts of the Polish people. To, to their freedom and dignity as persons. Right. Yeah. I went right. to Victory Square in Warsaw, where, like, his first visit back. Like in Victory Square, right? Yeah, he in, had that in mass. 1979, right? I think it's nine, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, it was a vigil of Pentecost. They wouldn't let him offer mass on Pentecost. They thought it would be too powerful. <laughs> 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 they were, They tried to, like, yeah. Tip it down. I know. Yeah, they tip did. everything down the whole trip. <laughs> Didn't but, work. Uh, yeah, they gave the vigil. I don't know if they do that Catholics have vigil masses, but uh, but he called down the Holy Spirit upon this earth and let it renew the face of the earth. He did. This yeah. earth. So this powerful. earth. And today they've got this big concrete cross where the 
the altar was in the square. Mm. And they've got that quote on the, I was with a Polish guy who could translate it for me, but the quote's there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just so powerful to think about what happened there that, you know, eventually a couple of years later, the solidarity movement and mm-hmm. leading to the overturning of the running the Soviet rule out. And uh, it's a remarkable story. Uh, Pope John Paul II is one of one of my patrons and favorites. He's such a such a saint for our time for so many reasons. Um, his his being able to see Jesus in each person, but also speak to large crowds and stir up large crowds. I was in yeah. Denver as a Protestant. Oh, were you? And I remember his voice so distinctly; it causes bumps on my arm. Yeah, when he he flew into the, the the stadium there, and the young people were Mile High Stadium. Mile High yeah. Stadium, yeah, they were calling out, "John Paul II, we love you, we love yeah. you." He said in his voice, "John Paul II, he he loves you." But <laughs> this that there was a even though it was to the crowd, there was a sense it was for for me, mm-hmm. and. I think each person felt that. The love was so powerful that we felt it for each one of ourselves. Yeah. Very stirring. Yeah, I watched it on television. I didn't realize... I was I was just having this kind of conversion experience. I didn't realize the significance of it. But mm. I still had a powerful experience through watching it. I was watching it on EWTN. I wasn't in the community. But... Um, yeah, when he was at Cherry Creek State Park, it was really, and and he had this uh, this incredible memory mm-hmm. that you know he would remember of like, persons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of of all things, but one of the stories that I that I share it comes from Chris Stefanik, who mm-hmm. who shared it. But this Bishop Robert Brom, uh, when Brom was a seminarian, he was in Rome in 1964. Mm. And uh, he was walking into the Church of the Jesu. And Kerr as an auxiliary bishop, was walking out. They had a little exchange, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. And Votiva went his way and Brahm went his. And then yeah. years later, he was named bishop in 1983. He goes right before John Paul II. And John Paul says, I know you. We've met before. <laughs> <laughs> and Brahm says, no, no, no. Fully far, yeah. we've never met. But... A couple of days later, Stanislaus Jevich, uh, the Pope's secretary, came to Brahm and said, 1964, outside the Church of the Jesu, <laughs> you met the Pope. Don't argue with the Pope. <laughs> and, and then Brahm says, how does he do that? And Jevich apparently said, well, he, when he meets a person, he never forgets them because he sees yeah. the face of Jesus in a unique way. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the other things about him that has inspired you, John Paul? I think his delight in the human person, in whatever culture or language, mm-hmm. uh, and his desire for people to be fully alive in the full truth of who they are, in a way that's not only conformity to the universal mandates of the church, but also um, alive in their own culture and language. and. Uh, that I find so so stirring and moving as well. Um, his tenderness 
for, for such a diversity of people, I find so moving. Um, and also this father, that he, he cultivated deeply his own unique gifts in his pontificate. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many popes are, have been actors? Right, but, right. but he was an actor. He loved language. He loved poetry. And he brought all of that to the office of the papacy. Right. You know, he knew how to hold a stage, right? yeah. the, wor- the world stage. Yeah. Um, and so those are some of the things that, that I find so, so moving. But, but, but back to personal vocation, he says in so many of his documents uh, that, that this attentiveness to the one, he says in his very first encyclical, that man is the primary and fundamental way of the church. Each unique and unrepeatable person is the primary and fundamental way of the church. And so this message that we've, we have to create a culture that's is ordered towards the flourishing of each one for the body, for the sake of the body, is, I think it's just, it's a message that, that is desperately needed. And he was the, the main driver of that message. Yeah. Um, and his experience in Poland where they were, I mean, he describes it as humiliations, right? Yes, of the Polish people, right. So I guess he had a deep sense of uh, what it means to have to overcome that, I guess. To co-suffer with his people. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, But this diversity of experience, right? He was a, you know, worked in, in, um, as a, a, how did he work? Michael talks about. Limestone, like a limestone oh, a quarry, quarry yeah, 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 working quarries, but but being in solidarity with with skilled tradesmen and manual workers, and being able to reference that experience, co-suffering with us yeah. in so many ways, you know, he did that as a Polishman. And I was surprised. I was reading George Weigel's book that he wrote. I don't have all his titles, but he, he wrote about writing Witness to Hope and his relate friendship with John Paul. Yes, he did, yeah. And I was, I was, I found it moving to describe like, you know, the affection of John Paul. Like he'd give him like this big, strong mm-hmm. hug, a long hug, or mm-hmm. you could tell he just had this, it didn't seem like it was super expressive, like what he said, but it was clear that man he felt this bond of friendship man and it it meant something to john paul i guess when you're his friend mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. like uh, he it was powerful i remember george weigel talking about that and yeah clearly he was so personally moved and then the other thing that john paul always was quoting too is that Vatican II has it in there about that sincere giving of ourselves. Yes. Talk about that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. That we, we, don't, we don't know ourselves until we give of ourselves. And, right. and, and Jesus' self-gift is model for us. Um, that we, we find ourselves in self-gift. Uh, I have often quoted that phrase and point to it in our work with personal vocation. That we're only going to realize our own full identity when we give of ourselves. But to do that well means that we have to understand and possess ourselves. And so it's not, it's not wild subjectivism to have a deep, deep 
cultivation of one's own unique selfhood. Because when we do that well, then we can give ourselves more fully. And uh, John Paul is very attentive to that dynamic. Um, that, that strong self-gift implies strong self-possession and, uh, and freedom. Yeah, I know like in the priesthood, they would warn you, I'm a spiritual director, that you know, the priest could feed off the people. It's like maybe the adulation and stuff he's getting back. Mm-hmm. He's losing sight of he's giving to them, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> that taking. And that word sincere, you, know, you only find yourself through a sincere giving of yourself. What is, what's the importance of that word? It seemed like an unusual word, mm. a sincere giving of yourself. I think it implies um, a humble acceptance of one's place in the world and again, a depth of of gift. Because if, if if we're just showing up and living on the surface of things, and going with the flow of, let's say, a, a community is about hospitality, and we jump into the community and we do the community things that we need to need to be done. Uh, but if that's not very intentional and done from a place of of decided responsibility, then I think it lacks sincerity and depth. So I, I, I equate that sincerity with with uh, interior depth. Yeah. Or even that phrase too, like disinterested love. Yes, yes. I'm not interested like what I get back all mm-hmm. the time. You know? <laughs> Let me just close with this. Uh, what are some of the books that you recommend along these themes that have helped you in your work? Of, mm-hmm. Yeah. Your work? The journalist Russell Shaw, who's still writing prolifically, in his 80s, he has written several books about personal vocation, one of them with Germaine Grusey, who's passed along, called Personal Vocation, God Calls Everybody, Everyone by Name. That's an important book. Father Herbert Alfonso, Jesuit, he interprets the Ignatian spiritual exercises in terms of personal vocation, that, that, that basically the the, the, the election uh, from St. Ignatius is about identifying one's calling, unique calling, and, and, um, and orienting oneself toward it. So that, that book uh, is great. Discovering Personal Vocation, I think it's called, Father Herbert Alfonso. Father Jacques Philippe writes beautifully about, about uh, calling in Called to Life. Um, I, I wrote a book as well with Luke Burgess. We co-authored it called Unrepeatable, Cultivating the Unique Calling of Every Person. And um, of course, you know, I recommend that. So those, those are four texts. I also think in terms of church teaching that a critical, critical text is uh, Christa Fidelis Laici on the vocation and mission of the lay faithful. And that was done in 1988, I believe. But it, it contains definitive church teaching on the priority of personal vocation. In, in paragraph 58, 
John Paul says that the fundamental objective of the formation of the lay faithful is an ever clear awareness of one's vocation. Uh, and then a line later, he says, this personal vocation and mission defines the dignity and responsibility of every member of the church. Mm. Uh, so that, that's a critical document on, on vocation. Also his first encyclical letter, Christ the Redeemer of Man, mm. where he defines personal vocation. And he says, he says, every initiative, this is a paraphrase, but it says, uh, every initiative in the church, if it's going to lead to true renewal, has got to take into consideration the, the unique and unrepeatable um, uh, vocation that each Christian has for the building up of the body of Christ. Mm. Um, so I, I draw reference to that because it, it connects our renewal efforts with, with uh, personal vocation. Also, another book uh, is by Romano Gardini called The Meaning of the Church. And there he writes beautifully about how the, when the, the church is always attentive to each person, each member, and in turn, each member has to come into their own unique self for the sake of the church. So this dynamic of, of, of the whole within the whole is something that he says is, the, is what the meaning of the church is all about. Um, so that, I highly recommend that text as well by, by Gordini. Mm. De Grisey, um, was the catechism presented in... I seem like I remember him making a criticism of the catechism. Yes, he does. <laughs> what, what, is that, what is that criticism about? Well, he says that, that there's clear teaching about personal vocation that was you know, anchored in Vatican II, in, in Lumen Gentium, on the document of the laity, um, and in Gaudium et Spes, the Church in the Modern World, and, and clearly developed by John Paul II in magisterial documents like the ones that I referenced. But personal vocation is not explicitly mentioned in the catechism. Mm. Now, Dr. Petrock Willie, who's a you know, wonderful catechist, he takes some issue with that. Um, I forget the, the paragraph reference, but, mm. but you know, there, there are references in the catechism around one's own, the importance of identifying one's own mission yeah. in the church, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Griset <laughs> laments that there's not more on personal vocation. His, his moral theology is ordered around personal vocation mm. in um, the way of the Lord Jesus. So that would be another text, yeah. which is so yeah, And that's a lot of like cases, right, that yes. are presented. So that usually doesn't go with personal vocation, does it? Or, or does it? I don't know. Well, he has a lot of, of cases there in terms of... Yeah. of, of um, appropriate Catholic moral theology, mm -hmm. but in terms of one's response to living life fully, uh -huh. um, uh, obeying the universal moral norms of the church, right. but also identifying one's particular call. He says it's to do that well, you've got to recognize and live your personal vocation yeah. Yeah. Um, as, as our, again, our, our unique way of responding to the universal call to holiness. Right. So it's, it's, it's a guiding theme yeah. In, the, yeah. in this book. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure talking Thanks, with you. Thanks, Father Mark. Joshua. It's been great to talk to you. Mm -hmm.